Take your Bible and uh, open up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, is where we uh, find ourselves this evening. Romans chapter 7, we are in verse 18. And I'll read to the end of the chapter here. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Paul says, For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Well, tonight we're going to come to the end of our study here in uh, Romans chapter 7. Paul in these uh, concluding verses is speaking about the struggle that he has with indwelling sin. He's writing as a mature believer. He's honestly addressing the ongoing struggle that, that every genuine believer acknowledges that of, uh, of that reality in their own life. Uh, we understand that we live in a fallen world. We understand that in, in this fallen world we have the, the, the world itself, the devil uh, against us, waging war against us. But there really is a far more sinister, more constant, uh, terrifying opponent than uh, the world and the devil it, that has established a stronghold, a foothold within every, within inside each every, and every believer. It really is the indwelling sin. So we're in a battle with this thing, indwelling sin. We've been born again. If we come as repentant sinners to Christ, we've been given a, a new life. We've been given a new nature. We've been given a righteousness that we don't possess on our own, a righteousness that cannot be attained to or achieved by keeping the law, a righteousness that is given to us at salvation. And again, it's a righteousness that comes to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 is a verse I've referenced several times, numerous times through this uh, series. But again, Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, two of the greatest words ever, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And I told you before that word new is kainos. It means not chronologically new, but new as in quality, qualitatively new, new in kind. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a word that describes something that has been created at a qualitatively new level of excellence. That's really is the, the idea. Something that has been created at a qualitatively new level of excellence. And again, that's in part the doctrine of regeneration. That's the part in part uh, the doctrine of the new birth. So again, to be in Christ is, is some was uh, one of the most profound statements uh, of great significance in the, in the Christian vocabulary, because at the moment of salvation, we're taken out of the realm of Adam and, and we're brought into out of that realm of sin and death, condemnation, and we're brought into Christ. In Christ, we're brought into the realm of Christ, into the realm of the life of Christ. And as we've seen throughout our study, our old man, who we used to be, was characterized. It was a life characterized by sin, but our new life in Christ is now a life that is characterized by righteousness because we've been brought in full union with the person of Jesus Christ. And again, not just fully forgiven and justified, but at the same time that we're fully forgiven and justified, the process of sanctification begins immediately. 
our separation from sin unto righteousness uh, because of the righteousness again given to us by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we're in Christ, the Bible says this new life that we have in Christ, uh, the Bible says because of that, we've been given a new heart, Ezekiel 36. We've been given a new spirit, Ezekiel 18. We've been given a new song, Psalm 40. We've been given a new name, Revelation 2. We've been given a new life. We now walk in newness of life, a transformed life, a, a changed life. So again, salvation is not just a legal declaration as such. It is in part, but salvation is a real salvation. The salvation that we have in Christ is a real salvation, a real life transformational change, a real transformational change of life. Again, because of the work of redemption uh, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God doesn't just declare the forgiven sinner just the work of redemption actually begins to work out the process of sanctification or that produces the or actually begins to work out the uh, and produce righteousness in, in the life of the believer so again those whom god has justified he's going to sanctify those whom god has justified they are going to experience in their life personal holiness because again the person of the lord jesus christ changes people's lives I mean, it's a tremendously important truth that I've camped on numerous times throughout this series that we have to get a grasp on. We are absolutely different. I did not say we are perfect, but I say we have a qualitatively new life in Christ. Remember all the way back in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, uh, the question was, how shall we who died to sin live in it? And the answer was, you can't. Because when you repent and when you come to faith in Christ, listen, we don't just, sin, we don't just add Christ to our sinful lifestyles. When you repent and you come to faith in Christ, you don't just simply add Christ to your sinful lifestyle. That kind of a person is not changed. That, that kind of person is not saved. When you come to Christ, you become a, a qualitatively new person, a different person, a new person in kind. Again, a new in quality, new in kind kind of a person. And again, it's a vital truth we have to get a grasp on. The fact that we've been given a qualitatively new life by the resurrected power of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of our union with him, we have been recreated. We've been given a new nature. We've been given a nature that is holy, righteous, pure. Uh, uh, We've been given a cleansed and a purified soul. That's what we talked about last week when we went into 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. A new life given to us by God, therefore that new life, it has absolutely no taint of sin, no taint of corruption, a new life that is imperishable, a new life that is immortal, a new life that is holy because it's a life given to us by a holy and pure God himself. Now I said last time, this is exactly where the tension comes in. This is where the tension comes in. This is the point of conflict because everything that I've said is absolutely true. But the reality is we're both sons of Adam and sons of God. We have this new created us in Christ that has holy longings, that wants to and desires to and longs to do the right thing, but we're still human. We are, uh, we are still of flesh. That's the phraseology, of flesh. There's a battle that's waging war within us, a battle with the flesh, and the flesh is always dragging us down. This battle with the flesh, this battle with indwelling sin. And again, it's a battle with our unredeemed humanity that is a very real part of it, a real present part of us. It's a lifelong battle, a lifelong conflict with indwelling sin that constantly assaults us. 
And it's going to be a force that we have to deal with, a force that we have to reckon with until we meet Jesus either face to face in death or until the Lord comes and returns for his people. And everybody who is a genuine believer in Christ recognizes and acknowledges that battle with sin. That once we come to faith in Christ, we're aware of a war, we're aware of a battle within our life, a conflict that never existed before we came to Christ, but a conflict that has not since ceased. Right? It's a struggle. It's, again, it's the battle of enduring sin. So we're in a real battle with sin now that we are in Christ, a real battle that we were not involved with when we were in Adam. And I said to you numerous times, you know, before you came to faith in Christ, you sinned and you never thought anything of it, right? You just sinned and sinned and sinned. It wasn't a bothersome issue to you. But now you've come to faith in Christ, and now you sin, and it now what? bothers you. That's the tension. That's the battle with indwelling sin. So we have to realize as believers who we are. We have to realize as believers that we're no longer dominated by sin. But if we're very honest with ourselves, we're, not, we're also not dominated by righteousness. That's why many theologians have called the Christian life the already-not-yet lifestyle or the already-not-yet kind of experience, meaning that the Christian life, in the Christian life, the believer has a sinless position and a sinless identity with Christ in the truest sense. Positionally, we are completely, finally dead to sin, freed from sin, no longer slaves to sin. In Christ, we are already fully forgiven, declared righteous, already delivered from the power and dominion of sin, already our body of sin has been done away with, but we're not yet perfect. Right? We're not yet perfect in our daily experience, in our daily, in our daily walk with life. We understand who we are positionally, but then we see something different working its way out in the members of our body. That's why Paul said himself in Philippians 3 and 12, not that I've already obtained to it nor have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. I press on. Why was I laid hold of by Christ? For perfection. We're in the process of being conformed to the perfect image of the perfect person, the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I've not already attained to it, but I'm pressing on. Right? I'm not there yet. I'm still in this battle. I'm still fight, fighting. I'm fighting the fight of faith. I'm moving forward in my daily walk, in my progressive sanctification, in my daily walk, looking more and more like Christ. Again, it's an already but not yet kind of a living something that is common, a common experience uh, of the believer. So as I said a few times back, uh, if you were to pick one word that really described the Christian life, that would, word would be conflict. There is an intense conflict within dwelling sin. And that's what Paul is talking about here at, at the conclusion of uh, Romans chapter 7. So again, Paul here is speaking as a mature believer, a mature believer who is struggling with indwelling sin, because that's the normal experience that all Christians face. He wants to do what is right, yet he, he fails to perfectly obey God's will. So what he does is he lays out a series of laments, three that are similar and one that is a somewhat different instruction. We'll see that here at the end of the chapter. So in the three laments, he describes the condition he's lamenting. He gives the proof of its reality, and then finally he gives the source of the spiritual problem. The condition, the proof, and the source. Now, the first lament was found in verse 14 through 17. We worked through that last time, but just by way of review, let's go back there. Verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual. I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. 
For what I am doing I do not understand, and I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Verse 16, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So here's Paul's condition. Again, verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now the law comes from God. Therefore, the law is just like God is, holy, just, and good. But Paul says, I am of flesh. Note that he did not say, I am in the flesh. He did not say, I'm in the flesh. He did not say, I'm walking in open rebellion. But I am of flesh. I am carnal. I I am a man. I am human. I am a man unlike that which is spiritual that comes from God. So again, that's a view of the comparison between what God is like and what man is like. And the distance, obviously, between what God is like and what man is like is infinite. The law that proceeds from God demands, as we've seen through this series, not only an external obedience, but the law actually requires internal obedience, internal behavior. Obedience that is honoring to God, obedience that is honoring to God, and here's the word, always. The standard of God's law is perfection. The standard of God's law is perfection. But yet Paul finds he can't attain to it. He can't obey perfectly God's most perfect law. Why? Because the law is spiritual and I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now Paul's not saying he's like the unregenerate man who's a slave to sin. Rather, all Paul is saying when he makes that statement sold into bondage to sin is that sin is so powerful Even as a redeemed individual, sin is so powerful and influences in his life that he's even now often carried off by sin. Even as a saved individual, sin is so powerful within him that he's carried off to do those things that he does not want to do and not do the things that he wants to do. And he goes on in the section and admits the truth of that power of indwelling sin in the believer's life that it creates quite a turmoil, a state of conflict within his being constantly. Something, again, that every true Christian is aware of. So when the apostle comes here and compares himself to the holy, just, good law of God, he realizes that he is carnal, that he is, again, sold into sin, bondage to sin. Again, that the law requires perfect obedience, but he can't obey. He can obey to a certain point, but not all the way. Only to a certain extent. And then he fails, he disobeys, he can't proceed any further. Yet he also realizes that there's this desire to obey and that sin is not like it once was. Sin doesn't reign over him as it did as he was an unbeliever before he came to Christ. And since that is true, uh, that he is now a believer, I mean, he would have no positive sentiments towards God and his law if he had not been transformed and changed. Again, he understands that the law is holy, just, and good. But again, he's saying, look, sin is so powerful within me and hinders me from perfectly obeying God, which again is every christian's desire is it not right are you awake amen i mean don't we want to obey god we want to do the right thing but we find ourselves not wanting to do the right thing before you came to christ you didn't want to do the right thing you weren't concerned at all so again the battle with indwelling sin i think is a battle that's a lot of times overlooked that people don't realize the power of indwelling sin now that's what he's talking about he's trying to say look there's this battle that's going on that every understand every uh, christian understands The Spirit of God was now in Paul as a recreated being. Again, a new creation in Christ. Now he desires, maybe he was persecuting the church, and now he's desiring to honor Christ. 
right? He's desiring to lift up the church, elevate the church. He wants to obey God. He wants to obey him perfectly. But he still finds this ongoing battle within him, this battle with the corruption of indwelling sin. So again, here's a man who's truly spiritual. He is of flesh, but yet he's a child of God. He's a man. Verse 14 again, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Uh, Robert Haldane, a great commentator of the past, said, Sin has been displaced from its dominion, but not from its indwelling. That's a great statement. Sin has been displaced from its dominion, but not from its presence, not from its indwelling. Paul says, look, for we know. And again, that's a truth that every Christian is aware of. The plague of every Christian that he knows in his heart, this battle again with indwelling sin. Again, desperately wanting to obey God, but being dragged down by the flesh, by his unredeemed humanness. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. So here's the first lament. Here's the first condition Paul is lamenting. It's his inability to obey. It's his inability to obey God's most perfect law. Why? Because of the power of indwelling sin that hangs onto him and contaminates his life. The next thing he does is he offers proof of sin's power. Even again in the life of a mature believer, as Paul is here when he writes these words, verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. I mean, that's the human condition in one statement, right? In one sentence. Mankind created by God knows that there's right and wrong. Mankind created by God knows what right and wrong is. Yet because of sin's presence in man, he has no ability to do the right thing. As it compares to the perfect standard of God's perfect holiness and God's perfect law. The standard is perfection, not 99.9% almost there. The standard is perfection. Through the series, I've said the standard is the perfection of Christ. Again, it's not have you lied, it's not have you stolen, it's not have you lusted. Those things are issues, but they're not as big an issue as are you perfect as the perfect righteousness of the perfect person, the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, all have sinned and all fall short of the the standard, all fall short of the glory. So mankind created by God knows the right thing to do, but sin, because of the presence of sin, has no ability to do the right thing. Instead, what he does is he does the wrong thing. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I don't delight in. I don't approve of it. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now I'm going to pause here for a moment and take a little side jaunt. I won't go too far. But here is another reason why morality teaching is an absolute utter failure in the culture. Or in the church, if the church brings it in. Morality teaching teaches you to do the right thing. Morality teaching knows the right thing to do. You remember a few years back there was a uh, great campaign throughout the culture promoted by the government that said, just say no to drugs. You remember that? Just say no. Right? Just say no to drugs. Just don't lie. Just don't steal. Everybody knows that. But because of sin, man doesn't have the power or the ability to do what is right. One commentator of the past says this. He, he says, I know the, if I know the right thing was to do the right, if I know the right thing was to do the right thing, then life would be easy. But knowledge by itself does not make a, a man good. It is the same in every walk of life. 
we may know how we ought to behave in any given situation, but that is a very far from being able to behave. That is the difference between religion and morality. It says morality is knowledge of what to do. Religion is knowledge of Jesus Christ. Morality is knowledge of a code. Religion is knowledge of a person. And it's only when we know Christ that we're able to do what we ought to do. That's a great statement. Right? Having the knowledge of don't do drugs isn't going to help you to stop do drugs. Your flesh won't allow you. That's why people who, once they start down that track, once they start down that path in their life, it's very hard for most people to get away from drugs and alcohol and those kind of things of their past because the flesh has such a power and sin has such a power over them. The flesh craves. They know they can look at their life and say, my life's all messed up. I know this is the wrong thing to do, but they don't have the power within them to do the right thing. It's because of the power of indwelling sin. Morality is knowledge of a code. Religion is knowledge of a person. And it's only when we know Christ that we are able to do what we ought to do. I would go on and add to that statement. It's only when we know Christ and are indwelt by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit that we're able to do what we know we ought to do. But then even at that point, not perfectly. Because sin is such a presence within our flesh. So the apostle says here, the, the proof of indwelling sin's power is found in my inability to do what I know I should do and then doing that which I know I should not do. That's the proof. That's the proof of the power of indwelling sin. Again, that's why morality teaching ultimately is of no value to those who don't have the indwelling person, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not found in their lack of knowledge and desire to do the right thing. The problem is found in their lack of ability, their lack of power in and of themselves to do the right thing. They can't do it. They can't overcome their sin. can't overcome their flesh. So again, when the law comes and says, here the rules, do this and live, the law comes but gives man no power to do so. Don't do drugs. There's no power in that law to give you the power, the ability to, to not do that. So it doesn't matter if a man knows the right thing to do. It doesn't matter. Listen, if a man really, 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 really really desires to do the right thing. He can't do it. He just can't do it in himself. He doesn't have the power to do so. Because every time a man tries to do the right thing in his own strength, he's beaten back by the power of indwelling sin. That's a reality in the regenerate world. That's a reality in the unregenerate world. That's just a reality of the power of indwelling sin in, in, the, in, the, in the flesh. Verse 15 again, For what I am doing I do not understand, or I don't delight in or don't approve of. What I want to do, I do not do. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now, the source of this conflict, the source of this inability, again, the, of the conflict uh, in Paul's life and by extension in all of our lives who call upon the name of Christ, is sin. Again, indwelling sin, verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I do agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 17, so now no longer am I doing the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So when a man does the very thing he hates, he testifies again to the goodness of the law that prohibits the very sin which he is practicing. He also, when he does the very thing that he hates and doesn't do the thing that he wants to do, gives testimony to the irrationality of sin. Right? The irrationality of sin. What I'm doing, I don't delight in. What I want to do, I don't do. Rather, I do the very thing I hate. I agree, therefore, wholeheartedly with the law of God, confessing that it is indeed good, but I still do the thing I don't want to do. That's irrationality. Schizophrenia on a spiritual level. 
that's impotence. That, that's a man, though, who is spiritual because he has a desire to do the right thing, but he's still defeated dealing with the issue of his flesh. And again, that's a man, again, who's regenerate because the unredeemed man doesn't care. The unredeemed man does not agonize over his sin. He just sins. Doesn't think anything of it because it's just the normal, natural part of his life. But the regenerate man, the man who's in Christ, hates his sin. He hates evil within him. He longs to be pleasing to God in everything that he does. He longs to be obedient and to follow God closely. Yet again, the honest testimony of every Christian, by way of painful experience, knows the anguish of Paul's first lament here. For we know that nothing, we know that the law of spiritual, I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. I don't practice what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. So again, this is testimony of the fact that the man in Romans 7 is converted. I remember a couple times back, I went through this whole long historical issue of who is the man in Romans 7, all these different views. Three views are wrong. I gave you the right one. I'm proving to you the right one. He's a man who's regenerate. He's a man who's converted. He's a man who knows his Savior. He wants to do the right thing, but he still finds sin within him that he hates that sin. But again, who but, an intelligent, who but a, a saved man can make that kind of a claim in, in the affirmation that I hate my sin? Verse 16, if I, not, if, I'm, uh, if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 17 again, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So again, he's acknowledging the hopelessness, honestly acknowledging the hopelessness and the utter futility of a man apart from the person of the Holy Spirit, that even after coming to saving faith in Christ, he struggles with sin, right? And that struggle with sin, again, is a sign of sanctification. Apart from Christ, before you got saved, you didn't think about your sin, you just sinned. Now you've become saved, now you want to obey, you're struggling with sin. That is a sign of sanctification. That is a sign of the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Now what is sanctification? Without getting very theological, is it becoming good or doing better? Well, on a certain sense, certain level, yeah, that's perhaps true. But the real mark of sanctification occurs in, in a, it, with a growing sense of reality of just how sinful we are and just how holy God is. Again, before you came to faith in Christ, you never thought in those kind of categories. The more the light of the truth, the light of the person of God, the light of the person, the holiness of the person of God shines into your life, the more you see his perfection, the more you see your imperfection. The more you see his holiness, the more you see your lack of holiness. And when you start realizing this issue of God's holiness and your sin, it, it's a mark of sanctification. It, again, a growing sense of the reality of how sinful we are, therefore pushes us to see even more our need of Christ. Because Christ, we don't need Christ just at justification. We need Christ where? Sanctification. We need Christ in all aspects of life. We see our utter dependence upon the, the Lord Jesus Christ, our utter need of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll stop for a moment and say, well, you know, if you're somebody who's claimed faith in Christ and for any period of time, and you don't know anything of what I'm talking about up to this point, if you've never dealt with this issue, if you don't know the anguish of, uh, uh, in your soul of your own sin, then you probably need to stop and really reevaluate yourself to make sure that you're really in the faith. Because the man who really knows Christ as Savior, the man who knows Christ as Savior, though again, the more he knows of the holiness of God, he senses an ever greater reality of his own sin. 
So instead of being self-satisfied, like I'm doing a pretty good job in my religious life, he, he longs to be free from the corruption of the body of death. He wants to be with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he realizes that um, his life is not what it should be, not what it will one day be. He longs to be free from this body of death and again to be with, with Christ. So that man who has come to that knowledge, who recognizes his sinfulness, God's holiness, that's the process, the product of sanctification. He cries out at the end of the chapter with the Apostle Paul, verse 24, saying, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. All right, that's lament number one. The next two laments. And in the next two laments, basically, the Apostle is going to repeat himself. What he said here in the first lament, I think the only major difference uh, is that there's just a growing sense of intensity uh, of restlessness over his struggle with sin. The second lament, verse uh, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the, good, the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am the one doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So again, once again, he's going to state the condition, he's going to give the proof, then he's going to give the source of the lament here in this second lament. Here's the condition, verse 18 again. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now immediately I have to stop and address what this is not saying. If you have the NIV, don't raise your hand. Because the NIV wrongly translates the Greek word, the word flesh there is sarx. S-A-R-X in the transliteration. The NIV says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my sinful nature, instead of using the word flesh. When the NIV interjects sinful nature, nature, let me tell you what, that is not a translation. That's a commentary. That's an interpretation. That's a theological point of view. Now, I want to make sure that we understand again, we do not have two natures inside of us. The good little angel and the bad little angel fighting back and forth within our head, trying to win the battle to say he's going to win. Now, I know that there's a lot of commentators who hold that view. I know there are a lot of Bible teachers who hold that view, who teach that. I know that perhaps many of you have come from that kind of a background. You've been taught that there's a conflict between the old nature and the new nature within every Christian. But that phraseology is not biblically accurate. Because in Christ, we have a new life in Christ. Again, in Christ does not mean that we are added, that Christ's nature is added to us. Christ's nature is added to our old nature but rather to be in Christ means there's a complete transformation of life, a resurrection unto life. We used to be dead in trespasses and sins, but now we've been made alive in Christ. We've come from death to life. We've come from being unregenerate to being regenerate. We've come from being dead to being born again and alive to God. So this dualistic view of two natures within one person who is a Christian is not a biblical, not an accurate biblical understanding of the reality. I know you're going to go, well, but that's what I was taught all my life. I understand that. You know, take your brain out tonight when you go home, scrub it with the word of God, put it back in and get it fixed. You need to understand truth. 
The dualistic view of two natures in one person who is a Christian is not biblical. And a Christian, again, no longer has a sinful nature, but a Christian has a what? New nature. A Christ's nature. Christ's nature. I don't know if I ever shared this verse with you, but 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Some of the translations say new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come. Do you know what it means when it says the old things have passed away and new things have come? It means old things have passed away and new things have come. All right? Ephesians 4.22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which was being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the deceit, of deceit, Verse 23, and you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So a Christian's new self or new nature is actually in the likeness of God. Therefore, the Christian's problem, again, is not with his nature. It's not with this false dualistic view of nature's battling. No, it's his flesh. It's his unredeemed humanness that still clings to him. You go, I don't understand. You keep saying unredeemed humanist. I don't understand. I'll give you a picture. And if you don't get it after this, I don't know how else to help you. Somebody once said, and I don't know who it was, but I, I had this down, written down someplace. He said, a Christian is like a man who is clean, freshly showered, but has continued to wear the same clothes he had on when he fell into the manure pit. Clean on the inside, but trapped in the clothing of filth. That's a great picture of unredeemed humanness. Clean on the inside, but rotten on the outside. The Bible says that the Christian is in the spirit, but of flesh. Of flesh. Therefore, there's going to be this continuing battle with the flesh because our humanness, our mortal body still hangs on. At times, it's trying to lure us back, always back into old sinful patterns, sinful habits. But again, the Christian has a new nature. A Christian is no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Romans 8 and 9. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Isn't that amazing how I say things in advance and then we just pick it up in the scripture? Because that's exactly what the scripture says. Right? You're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of God, a spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. That's the reality of the new nature. There's a battle, yeah, there's a battle that's going to ensue within the Christian that the unredeemed man knows nothing of. He doesn't have a concept of. Galatians 5.17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These things are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There's the war. The believer has a new nature, a divine nature, and dwelt by God's own spirit. Therefore, he desires to live accordingly. He no longer has a sinful nature. What he has is a conflict, a war within him. He has a flesh. And the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. Now, back to you NIVers. I have in my notes to take a pencil, but I would encourage you to take a pen, scratch out sinful nature, and write in the word flesh, because that's the issue. That's what the Christian is dealing with. 
We have new natures in Christ. The trouble is not our nature. The trouble is flesh that remains the flesh that is that we're doing a war with. And again, on that issue of the flesh, I just want to make sure Paul's use of that term, the flesh, it is true at times he uses that term to speak of our physical being, but it's most important to understand that often he uses it with reference to indwelling sin. He's really using it as a principle that works within us. He uses it morally, ethically, power. He's saying, look, the flesh is the source, the stimulus of our sin that wages war against our godly desires, our godly nature. The flesh refers again to the remnants of our sinfulness, our mortal weakness, our tendency to sin, our tendency to failure. The flesh really is, if you will, the corpse of the old self, the corpse of the unregenerated self. Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right? The old, unregenerated self has been crucified with Christ, and that person no longer lives. However, the flesh, the old, the corpse, if you will, of the old eye, although dead, still continues to influence everything it touches. The corpse influences everything it touches with filth and decay and rottenness, just like corpses do, right? Putrefying contamination. So the flesh, therefore, refers to the sinfulness that remains within us, us who are justified by faith, because while we are on this earth, we're always going to remain, as Luther said, symbol justice et peccator. At the same time, sinners, but absolutely justified. There's this ongoing battle. Now, I also want to make sure that we're not setting up some kind of thought in our minds. We're thinking of some kind of spiritual dualism, that the material, the physical flesh is the problem. There's a battle between the physical or the material and the spiritual world when he uses the word flesh. That's not what he's saying. The flesh is really not the physical body per se. It's really our sinful tendencies. However, our sinful tendencies do tend to exercise themselves, if you will, through the members of our physical body. But the flesh really operates in the corruption of the mind. And as much an issue of the mind as it is our physical members, our hands and our feet. Again, when do you decide, when do you go fishing? Not Saturday morning, Friday night. Right? You get ready, you think about it in your mind, you make the preparations to go fishing the next morning. Get the bait, get the tackle, get the boat, get whatever. Physical hands and body to go do that. When do you choose to pursue sin, sin that dwells within you? More than likely, you say, tonight, when everybody goes to bed, I will. Oh, instead of driving from my work to home, I think I'll take a detour and go over here to a place I should not go. Right? Sin starts in the mind before it carries itself out into the members of our bodies. And again, it's the flesh, the unregenerate self. We who are Christians are in the Spirit, in Christ. We are still of flesh, still sold into bondage to sin. We still have this principle of corruption within us that at times uses the members of our body, whether it be our hands, our feet, our mouths, whatever, our imaginations, that negatively affect us. But again, the battle is with the flesh. It's not physical and material. It's with the flesh, this principle of sin within us, this corruption. 
So Paul's lament here in this portion of scripture is that the flesh has used itself as a beachhead, if you want, to launch its attack of wickedness against his life. Verse 18 again, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So again, he's not trying to remove the responsibility. Uh, the Geraldine character, remember Flip Wilson? It's not my responsibility. The devil made me do it. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, it's my flesh. I got to deal with my flesh. My flesh is associated with me as a person. I got to do battle with my flesh. So the proof of the sinfulness of his flesh, again, is found out, the lament, then the proof. Verse 18b, the continuation of that verse, it says, For the willing is present within me, but the doing of good is not. Verse 19, for the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I don't want. So again, Paul's desire as a mature believer is to only do good, but unfortunately, while the willing is present in me, the doing of good is not. For the good I want, I do not do. So again, as a true believer grows in their spiritual life, he's going to have a growing hatred for sin and an increased desire for obedience and righteous living. Now, the Christian may desire to do good, but he says, I practice the very evil I don't want. So again, here's this battle again, this battle with sin, the battle with the flesh, that again, every mature believer goes through and is aware of. The source of his struggle, verse 20 If I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So that's almost exactly a repeat of what he just said in verses 16 and 17. Again, I think this is an affirmation this man is regenerate. He states the desire that he wants to be obedient to God, but yet confesses his total inability, his uh, lack of power to do so because of indwelling sin. His third lament, verses 21 to 23. I find then that the principle of evil is present within me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So what's Paul's condition? Verse 21, I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So again, so common is this battle in Paul's life this battle with sin, he describes it as a principle, uh, an operating power, a law of experience that imposes itself upon his will. And again, he calls this battle with sin as evil that is present within him. The proof, verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. So again, Paul as a redeemed man Paul, in his inner man, delights in the law of God. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness and the things of God, yet in the members of his body he sees a different law, a different principle at work in the members of his body. So he says the struggle between this this new nature that he has as a redeemed man in his flesh and the power of indwelling sin is so great that it is literally waging war within him. Verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So again, he's just stating the very simple reality. He wants to obey God and then his inability to do so. And a growing frustration with that reality in his life. And again, this growing frustration wars within him. Between his mind that wants to obey God and his body that wants to drag him down into sin. And again, the true believer is in a constant battle with sin 
And again, we're all aware of this constant struggle with sin, and we all are aware of the fact that we'd like to be free from it, free from this battle. The source of the conflict, verse 23b, he says, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He says, look, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin in my members. Charles Hodge, a great theologian, says this, the principle of evil is not only active, but it's conquering. He says it takes the soul captive, so that in it is, in a sense of verse 14, a slave of sin, not a willing servant, but a miserable, helpless victim. This does not mean that sin always triumphs in act, but simply that its power from which the soul cannot free himself, it remains and wars in spite of all that we can do. Right? So sin's, uh, the, the source of Paul's conflict is no longer the inner man, the, the, the nature, because he has a new nature, a renewed nature, transformed nature, replaced nature. He's in the process of being sanctified. The source of his sin, he says, is my members. He rejoices on one hand in the law of God, but he sees another law at work, warring against the law of his mind, making him a prisoner of the law of sin. And that sin continues as a controlling power over him. Not always victorious, but again, that impulse to do the wrong thing. You know, the right thing to do, there's this impulse, this inner impulse, do this, do this wrong thing. You know it's wrong, but do it anyway, because nobody will know. Nobody will see. Nobody will know. They say no, and that power, that indwelling presence just keeps saying, no, do the wrong thing. Now, the moment that Paul came to faith in Christ, his salvation was perfect. The moment that we come to salvation in Christ, our salvation is perfect. Because in Christ, we are perfectly acceptable before God. In Christ, we're perfectly acceptable before God because we now have a righteousness, a justification granted to us as a gift of God's grace that comes through the perfect righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that righteousness given to us. The desire to do the right thing is part of the sanctification process, but again, this power of indwelling sin that remains in our mortal flesh is going to tempt us to sin always. Luther says this when he's speaking of a redeemed man. He says, as the apostle says in Galatians 5.17, I read that to you earlier, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. He says, that is to say, the evil desires war against the good desires. So there are two active laws or principles or powers that struggle in a man for life and death. The apostle thus speaks of himself as a warrior divided between two laws. He is not defeated by the law of evil lust as long as he does not surrender to them, which a carnal man does. Indeed, the apostle here shows that as he is a spiritual man, serves only one law while he resists the others. Again, there's these two principles, two powers. The flesh lusting at the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. A war. Now, just because we're at war doesn't mean we're defeated. We're only defeated when we give in to the temptation. The temptation is not the problem. It's the giving in to the temptation is the problem. I wonder if there's a solution to the problem. Ah, I've read on, verse 24. Paul's final lament. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself, with my flesh, or with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So again, this battle, this war that's going on within Paul, who wants to do the right thing but is not doing the right thing, frustrates him to the point that he cries out, Wretched man that I am. And it was the Scottish commentator Robert Haldane 
who observed that men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they have previously discovered the holiness of God and his law. I said that earlier. Once you understand how holy God is, once you understand the perfection of his law, then you come to a realization smack down in your face that nothing you do is going to make you perfect as the perfect one. And the more you come to a knowledge of the truth, and the more you come to a knowledge of understanding the holiness of God, and again, the more the light of that truth shines into your life, the more you see just how wretched you are. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And again, Haldane goes on and says, this kind of language is suitable only to the regenerate. An unregenerate man is indeed wretched, but he does does not feel the wretchedness expressed here. He may be sensible of the misery and may be filled with an anxious fear and dreadful forebodings. But the person here described uh, is wretched only from the sense of evil principle which is in his members. Such feelings no unregenerate man ever possessed. An unregenerate man may wish to be delivered from the danger and the punishment, but instead of wishing to be delivered from the law of his nature, he delights in that law. He has so much pleasure in indulging in that law. For its sake, he risks all consequences. He is saying, look, the unregenerate man only knows sin, and for some reason, unbeknownst to us, and we know the reason because of the power of indwelling sin, but you've seen people who are so trapped in their sin, their lives are such a mess, that what do they do? They continue to go that direction. They may not like the consequences. Divorce separation from their family, loss of their job, incarceration. But yet they keep double down and do the right, they do the same thing. They go, they're incarcerated, they get out of jail. The next day they do the same thing that got them, losing their family, losing their job, losing... Because for something in their flesh desires that kind of lifestyle. We look at people and say, well, that makes no sense to me. That only makes no sense to you, it makes no sense to me. Only because of God's kindness through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who's regenerated us. We can see death when we look at it. Right? The unregenerate man is not liking his consequences. He doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't want to pay the piper, as it were. But he delights in sin. That's why he practices it. You say that makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense. That's why sin is irrational. I think we've said it from the pulpit a few times. Sin makes you stupid. And he'd keep doubling down on stupid. Because that's the power of indwelling sin. So again, Paul's a mature believer. He cries out, wretched man that I am. And then he says again, who will set me free from the body of this death? It's the body of this death that again is the source of his torment, his frustration. Who will set me free? Uh, That little phraseology, set me free, means to be rescued. Rescued from danger. It was a word that was used for soldiers that had been wounded in battle and another comrade would come and take them off to safety, carry them off the battlefield. Who will set me free? Paul said, look, I'm longing for this day when I'm done with this issue, that I'm going to be rescued from the last vestiges of sin in my body, his unredeemed flesh. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, John MacArthur notes that Paul, when he uses that phraseology, body of this death, may have been using that phraseology in response to a form of punishment that an ancient tribe practiced in the area of Tarsus from which Paul came. MacArthur says this, 
It is reported that this ancient tribe sentenced convicted murderers to an especially gruesome execution. The corpse of the slain person was lashed tightly to the body of the murderer and remained there until the murderer himself died. In a few days, which doubtless seemed like an eternity to the convicted man, the decay of the person he had slain infected and killed him. Perhaps Paul had such torture in mind when he expressed this yearning to be free from this, from the body of this death. That's a pretty good little observation historically, right? So Paul is in this great lament, this great torture within his mind. He cries out in anguish, who will set me free from the body of this death? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And in the very next breath, he gives testimony to the answer. Verse 26, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what is true of Paul is true of us if we know Christ. Listen, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's the answer to your problems. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who's the answer to your problems. Rescue, victory over indwelling sin in the flesh belong to God through Christ. And God in his mercy has met the need of our salvation by providing for us justification through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God in his mercy will continue to meet our sanctification, not through the law, not through anything that we do, but again through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wretched man that I am, who set me free from the body of this death, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where deliverance comes from. We have deliverance from sin's power. We have deliverance from sin's penalty. One day we'll have deliverance from sin's presence through God in Christ. Deliverance on every level is a divine issue. It's not humanly attained. Victory that over sin that people long for comes only through Christ, and it only comes through struggle in this life until you repent, fall on your face, and acknowledge, acknowledge your inability, your impotence, that Christ Jesus is your only hope. So Paul ends the chapter by summarizing the two sides of the struggle. He says, So that on one hand I find my, with my, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. The commentator Cranfield says like this, Paul sums up with a clear-sighted honesty the tension with all its real anguish and also all its real hopefulness in which the Christian never ceases to be involved so long as he lives in this present life. We have tremendous hope in Christ. Don't tell people to stop doing drugs. They can't stop doing drugs. If they would have stopped, they could have stopped doing drugs. They're at least smart enough to know they should have stopped doing drugs a long time ago. That's ridiculous. Offer them Christ. Point them to the person of Jesus Christ. Take out your Bible and point them to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is mankind's only hope in this world for justification and sanctification. What we need is not more rules. We need more of Christ. We need a greater understanding, a deeper love for the person of Christ, a deeper understanding of what he has done, who he is, how he has provided for us abundant life in him. 
Now, as we cover the conclusion of the chapter, I just want to make a few observations, or just a few of them. Some observations and practical applications that come out of this section of Scripture. What does Romans 7 teach us? Well, Romans 7 teaches us this is just the normal Christian experience. And the normal Christian experience, listen, is hard. It's hard. It's a battle. It's a struggle. It's a struggle between sinful weakness and carnal tendencies. And that struggle is going to go on as long as we live. While sin's absolute tyranny has been broken, we still succumb to sin's temptation because we're still incarcerated in sinful flesh. But Paul says in Romans 8.23, But also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption to sons, the redemption of our body. We're going to be in a lifelong battle. Point number two. Normal Christian experience is hard. Christian life is hard. Point number two. God has called us to a lifelong battle with indwelling sin. We're called to slay, to mortify sin that dwells within us. Even as converted men and women. The issue of my justification, are we, are we, okay, are we okay there? The issue of my justification has already been taken care of. My right standing is taken care of, care of because of the substitutionary death of the person of Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about that. We're not talking about do this or don't do that so we can stand before God. We can always already stand before God if we're in Christ. We got that? We're talking about how do you live the life. We're to slay sin. Romans 8.13, For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are, but by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. And we're called to war to sin, right? We're called to mortify the flesh. First uh, Peter 2 and 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You know what the word abstain means? Thank you, it means abstain. From fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Which wage war against the soul. Stop doing them. Now, an unbeliever cannot respond to that. The believer can respond to that through the power of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. You can make a choice. Stop sinning. Don't do that thing. Perfectly? No, it's a struggle. I got it. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from immorality. You know what the word flee means? It means run as fast as your little legs can carry your hiney. Right? Run. Didn't say take it out and play with it and think about it and be tempted by it and maybe I should turn it on, maybe I shouldn't turn it Run from it. Flee morality. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh regarding its lust. I told you a long time ago there's this wonderful thing that comes on all electronic devices. It's called the off button. If the off button doesn't work on your electronic device, there's a new thing that's just come out not too long ago. It's called the trash can. You can either push the off button, and if you can't push the off button, take the trash can, throw it in the trash can, and throw the trash out. If you're going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh regarding its lusts. Got to give rigorous attention to indwelling sin. Number three, since we're engaged with this lifelong struggle with sin, we need to understand the war will never be achieved, or we'll never achieve victory in this war by ourselves. Right? We're never going to achieve victory by ourselves. Again, there's no quick fix solutions to the problem that we're dealing with. Uh, the confidence should not be an I can deal with that. I can deal with that. You probably can't deal with that. Probably not strong enough to deal with that. 
Christ can deal with that, but you probably can't deal with that. Now, Paul didn't come to this exasperating experience that he's gone through here in Romans 7 with all these declarations of laments. He didn't say this, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to me, he'll just try harder. Right? He, he didn't say that. He said, Thanks be to me through God, to God through Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus Christ is the issue. John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus Christ says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's interesting in the Greek. That word nothing in the English means nothing. It means nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We can't do anything. So it's to God through Christ that we have to look for our ultimate victory over sin and dwelling sin. Victory comes by the grace and power of God, not in and of ourselves, not in and of our own efforts. It comes from God through Christ. Number four, if we're going to fight the struggle with sin, then we have to be doing it with the tools that God has made available for us. Right? If we're going to fight and struggle with sin and be successful on any level, we have to battle with the tools that God has made available to us, chiefly prayer, sitting under the preached word, personal Bible study, personal meditation, walks of walking in obedience, Christian fellowship, service to others, and we could go on. But it's important. I read somewhere in the Bible it says not to forsake the assembly. And it's interesting to me, as I sit from this side of the pulpit, and I work all week long, and I think I never preach to anybody. That's honest truth. I never sit there and go, oh, so-and-so, I'm going to say this to them because I'm going to give them a whack. I never do that. I honestly never do that. But as I'm sitting and studying, I'm going, boy, you know what? I know that certain certain person has a struggle with sin. And this, this issue, I mean, it comes right out in the text here. It tells them how to solve that issue. It tells them to have victory over that issue. And you know what? It's probably 9.99% of the time that person's never in the room when that answer to their struggle with sin the struggle that they're dealing with comes up. Because for some reason, I don't know what the reason is, maybe it's legitimate, maybe it's not, but a whole lot of people don't think it's very necessary to come to the fellowship. I'm thankful that you're here, but you're about less than half of the amount of people here this morning. It's only the word of the living God that changes us. It's only the word of the living God that takes us to the person of Jesus Christ, because again, he's our only hope. Number five, the outcome with our struggle, and I'm going to go faster and just kind of give the headings here. The outcome with our struggle with sin, difficult, yes, but victory is certain. Right? Because God is in it. Victory is certain. God has promised to complete the work. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. If God justifies us, God is going to sanctify us. And the God who justifies us and sanctifies us, he's going to glorify us. Victory over indwelling sin is going to happen because of Christ as we pursue Christ. But it's a struggle. Number six. Again, I'm kind of repeating myself, but Paul does that, so it's okay. We can't rely upon ourselves in this struggle with indwelling sin. We can't rely upon ourselves with the struggle with indwelling sin. We have to rely upon Christ. God through Christ. Again, we have to understand that God has ultimately already delivered us from this situation of sin. We're, again, through Christ, freed from sin penalty. Through Christ, we are saved from uh, sin's power. It's a process, but it's no longer dominion over us. And again, through Christ, we're going to be saved from the presence one day. One day we're going to stand in glory. Weren't you excited when I read the book of Revelation, chapter 19? Jesus Christ is coming back, amen? 
and he, Lord willing, come, come quickly. Right? So that's it. That's Romans 7. We're headed off into Romans 8, Lord willing. Then we're going to see how this all works. Right? And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've come a long way. I don't know when we started this chapter 5. This, this, this uh, series in Romans has been kind of disjointed. But I think we started this new section of the series in chapter 5, which is chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And now we stand at the door of chapter 8. But the reality is we're at the same place we started when we were back in chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, we were talking about the triumph of God's grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, The law came in so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've gone through all these chapters, gone to the end of Romans 7, we're at the same place we started. We're standing in grace. It's the triumph of God's grace and kindness to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, not our own efforts. The whole thing, uh, all these chapters, point us to the person of Jesus Christ. Wretched man that I am, who set me free from the body of this death, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Father and our God, thankful for this truth, thankful for this, these times that we've had in Romans 7, we're thankful for the redemption we have through Christ from the victory, the victory we have over sin through Christ. Help us to grow in our knowledge of Christ, our love for Christ, to understand our life in Christ and understand what it means to have a purified soul, to be new creations in Christ. We honor, we praise you, and we adore you. In Christ's name, amen.